chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 4. Change that scripture today as we look at Stephen. It's Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 4. Now let's ask the Holy Spirit to be with us and to teach us those things which Christ left with us as we uh, humbly and quietly, reverently gather. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this day, for this magnificent spring, where everything seems to be blooming at once. Help us to bloom. Help us to be beautiful parts of your creation, and may the bloom that we go through within our spirits bear a great harvest in your kingdom. And Lord, when we come to see you face to face and begin our, our heavenly walk with you for eternity, God grant that we can look back over our shoulders and know that, yes, you did get through to us, and yes, we did bloom, and we did bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to think about Stephen this morning, and I'll uh, just tell you quickly up front, Stephen was one of the first, if not the first, Christian martyrs. He was stoned to death for a sermon he preached. We preachers should take note of that. (laughs) I want you to ask yourself a question uh, and just be deliberating on this within yourself as we move into a look at Stephen's life. Did Stephen know what was coming? When Stephen began that sermon... And as he got closer and closer to its climax, did he have any earthly idea what was waiting for him at the end? Now you think about that as we try to build some context now and put the story of Stephen in a larger perspective. The Holy Spirit has fallen. The apostles have been empowered to work signs and wonders. People are coming literally by the thousands, at least 5,000 at one point. All of Jerusalem is abuzz at the good news of Jesus Christ being preached fearlessly by the apostles. And scripture says, a great many of the Jewish priests also converted and followed the way. The believers met on a daily basis. They sold property. They gave to a common cause. They looked after each other. Uh, They had a spirit of oneness about themselves. But good news is sometimes hard to manage, especially on a local church level, and problems began to arise. There were not enough warm bodies around to oversee the distribution of food to the widows. And apparently one group of widows and their spokespeople complained that the other group was getting uh, priority attention. You've heard it said that the devil is in the details. Well, it could very well be he was trying to get his foot in that door. One group of ladies complaining about another group of ladies sounds perfectly volatile to me. (laughs) But anyway, word comes to the apostles that there are some logistical problems here. 
And so they say to each other, it is not right for us to have to be concerned and burdened by matters like that. We cannot leave our ministry of the word, of prayer, of preaching and teaching in order to wait on tables. So they make uh, an administrative decision that they will create a second level of ecclesiastical hierarchy, which will be called deacons. And they will give to this level of servanthood the responsibility of waiting on tables. Now that was the original job description for a deacon, to be a table waiter. This next week during Tea Room, you be sure to remind Fred and Tyler of that. Good deacons wait on tables. That was the original job description. Of course, you know that the meeting probably was a little larger than that. It wasn't just to wait on tables. When the apostle said, we can't leave what we're doing over here just to wait on tables, they probably were using a little euphemism there. That they, they probably meant, listen, we just can't take care of everybody and do all this other too. And so a a level of ministry was uh, called into being called deacons. Interesting word. The Greek is diakonos. Diadia, like diameter, means through. Konos means dust. A deacon is one who does the dirty work. A deacon is the one who works in the dirt, works in the dust. Literally, that's what it meant. Manual labor, those very important behind-the-scenes, logistical, administrative, mechanical tasks that were important to set the stage for, like, tomorrow when Tea Room begins again and everybody's going to stay together at 11.15 to help set up for it, right? So, um, there's a a second group of, of ministers ordained, created. There are seven of them. And their names are listed there in, um, in the scriptures for you. And Stephen was one of the original seven. Now remember, the job description for the first deacons was to take care of specifically the widows, but probably beyond that, the pastoral needs of the congregation. So the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit, could do the preaching and the teaching and the praying. You got that division? Well, guess what? They didn't stay there long. Because somehow, somewhere, sometime, in this ministry of pastoral care and taking care of people, several of these deacons were themselves filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to work signs and wonders exactly like the apostles. And Stephen was one of them. Stephen, originally ordained to be a caretaker of the congregation, has a powerful anointing. And with those signs and wonders come a new recognition, come a new credibility, and a new liability for him because not only does he become known to the Christian community he becomes known to their adversaries and so the opportunity comes where Stephen is called upon to defend himself against 
critics of the way. There are those who stir up trouble and very much in the pattern of good news challenged by the darkness. Stephen has this opportunity to defend uh, the gospel. And he does this in chapter 7. You have uh, one of the earliest of all Christian sermons. And if you were to if you were to say that there was a distinction between the apostles, say, and the deacons, you might want to say it was, it's the first Christian sermon that we have record of from a layman. But that's a hair we really don't need to split. But Stephen gives a marvelous, apparently off-the-cuff, biblical exposition of how uh, the Jewish nation have gotten to the place that they have arrived at by tracing their development generation by generation all the way back to Abraham. And he highlights along the way in this sermon, which is Acts 7, he highlights along the way how almost every movement of God toward Israel has been taken lightly, uh, abused, ignored, rejected. And he'll say, but your fathers... A little later on, but our fathers, a little later on, but they rejected the prophets. And everything's fine as long as he is blaming everybody in the past. Talking about all those bad guys who are now receiving their eternal reward, whatever it may be. Uh, But you sense something of a crescendo building. And suddenly the character the tone of the sermon seems to change. If you have your Bible open, look at Acts 7, beginning with verse 51. And I, as I shared with you earlier uh, this, this uh, course, I'm, I'm using the King James Version this year just in honor of its 400th anniversary. It was first published in 1611, it's a 2011, and it just seems fitting to honor this grand old dame who's served her Lord so long, the King James Version. But look at 51. Now, everything's fine. Everything's fine in this sermon until verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do ye. Oh, Now, we have moved beyond the academic. This has become personal. He is meddling. He is talking about those who are sitting right in front of him, flesh and blood. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now become the betrayers and murderers. He called them murderers. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, they did not gnash on themselves with their teeth. They gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul, later to become Paul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sounds familiar? There's a difference, however, between Stephen's dying plea and the dying plea of Jesus. In the dying plea of Jesus, he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And you look at the overlap of those two terms, and isn't that a, a deep theological insight into how the early church viewed Jesus? The Father and the Son as one. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Another echo of Jesus on the cross. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And I always love it when the Bible uses that euphemism for death. Jesus said about the daughter of Jairus, she is not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, King James says. I love this euthanism in the scriptures, that death is only sleep. And there is awakening. There's a grand, get, grand getting up morning waiting for all of us. And Stephen is stoned to death, and I go back to our original question. Did he know what was coming? Would he ever have preached that sermon if he knew what was coming? About halfway through, maybe, when the fervor began to build, and perhaps he sensed where this was going. Did he have any regrets? Did he have any second thoughts? Did he know what was waiting for him 20, 30 minutes out? That he would be stoned to death because of this sermon. I have an hypothesis. And it's just an hypothesis. But it fits, I think, some experience perhaps that we all have had. My hypothesis is when Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, you rejected all the prophets before you and now you are murderers because you've slain the just one. My hypothesis is that was not Stephen talking. My hypothesis is that the Holy Spirit within this man rose up and took over. Because there is a definite change in tone. It's almost like somebody else is speaking. I mean, you go up to that moment where he calls him stiff-necked people, and it's, it's almost kind of academic. It's conciliatory. It's almost pat on the back. In some ways, other ways, some rebuke. But the change in tone is so sharp, I don't think it was Stephen. Now, have you ever had a moment like that? Where you have said something and suddenly you ask yourself, where did that come from? Did I just say that? Somebody else in the room? Did, I never thought that thought before in my life and here I am speaking it out loud. Have you ever, do you feel, been privileged with the Holy Spirit Using your mouth, your presence, your example. 
even if you were the one who would later pay for it. I think personal Christian history is probably full of examples like this. And uh, as a preacher by call, I can tell you that there are many, many times in which I had that experience in the pulpit. Where did that come from? I didn't read that. I didn't think that. I didn't pray that. Suddenly, I'm going in this direction. This is not my outline. (laughs) My outline is here, and I'm going over here. There have actually been times, and I'm I'm sure other clergy presidents have had similar experiences, where, where, where between the seat and the pulpit, things just change. And there are new insights and new illustrations and even a new courage and self-confidence when up to that point your knees are knocking because you know you're not ready. And it's not been a good week in preparation. But suddenly you find yourself in the middle of one of the most powerful messages you've ever delivered because somebody else shows up and starts talking through you. The secondary question about uh, Stephen is, once he realized what was happening, did he regret it? Ever have an experience where you found yourself at a a time and a place and in a cause in which if you kept your mouth shut, you felt like you would be denying everything you stood for? The worst possible thing you could do at that moment would be silence. Something which was so near to you, something which was so dear to you, something which was so pivotal in in shaping your identity, not only within your own heart, but before your God, was being challenged or blasphemed or corrupted. And if you didn't speak, nobody would speak and you just couldn't stand it. You didn't care what it cost you. If you came across as some right-wing fundamentalist ignoramus, you didn't care. Came across as some radicalized fanatic, you didn't care. Because whatever was on the table there was so near and so dear, you could not allow it to be further molested. And I think that's what was going on with Stephen here. I think there was a pathos let loose inside of that man. He probably was listening to his own sermon, and he was convincing himself, and your fathers did this, and your fathers did this, and now you've done this, and he just couldn't stand it anymore. You stiff-necked people! A fit of exasperation. And it cost him his life. Another question. Was it worth it? Was that the best use of Stephen's life? What if he had lived 20 more years? Think of all the sermons. Think of all the churches he could have visited. Think of all the signs and wonders. Was that the best use of this obviously Holy Spirit gifted man? Preach one sermon and die? Listen, God's creation is full of flowers that work all year long to bloom one day. Daylilies, for example. You ever think about that? God's creation sometimes works and works and works and works for a singular moment. Is it, 
is it possible that in God's eyes, life uh, for us is not, a, not designed to be a place to stand, but a road to walk? But there are points along the way in that road which are of quint- quintessential value. And, and this is your life in that moment. This is why you are in this world. And you may live to be 90. But this is why you were born. This very moment. With um, great appreciation for Stephen's giftedness and his call. uh, I would like to postulate that this was his moment. This is why he was born. Would he have been the witness to the ages if he had not been martyred there? I mean, when we think of the name Stephen, what do we think of? We think of the first Christian martyr. We think of boldness in the face of persecution. We think of faith set in the context of a larger scriptural revelation. Spoken so faithfully by him. I think this is why he was born. If he had lived another 40, 50 years, we would not remember him, perhaps, other than just a short little mention in scriptures. Listen. All great, all great movements need a radical fringe. American Revolution, radical fringe, Boston Tea Party. Nathaniel Green, I regret that I have but one life to live for my country. We remember him for that. That was his moment. The, uh, the American uh, War Between the States, John Brown, with his raid on the federal arsenal at uh, Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, galvanized the nation. Uh, Harriet Tubman, Stowe, uh, every, every radical, every movement needs a radical fringe. Uh, Civil rights movement. Rosa Parks. Just had enough. She wasn't going to sit on the back row of that bus anymore. She probably didn't plan it. It just it just crawled all over her one time too many, and she refused to get off that bus. Uh, civil rights movement had, had radical fringe like uh, Malcolm X, uh, Black Panthers, but, and, who eventually began to move away from the fringe more toward the core. Martin Luther King was probably radical fringe when it all began, and he became the core. Christianity. It has been said of Christianity that the church was built upon, you know it, the blood of the martyrs. The blood of the martyrs. Apparently martyrdom was a a high call. A high calling. Uh, See, you know, I I hate, that's a terrible, terrible comparison, but I feel like I have to make it. and what's going on in the, in the Middle East now in, in the Arab communities with all of these so-called martyrs? You know, and what's waiting for them in paradise? And I, it, uh, That's not what we're talking about. Here is, 
lives, here is life laid down in love and personal sacrifice and not revenge and not hatred. Not as an act of war, but as an act of kingdom building. Uh, the early church had a, had a very quickly defined uh, understanding of martyrdom and, and its place. Perhaps one of the most uh, famous stories of early Christian martyrdom is uh, of that of Polycarp, who was either the bishop of Ephesus or Smyrna. I can't decide which because I hear him call both. Maybe, uh, maybe those, are, those two cities are the same. I, I don't know. But uh, uh, Polycarp was an early Christian bishop. Persecution broke out in his, in his city. Uh, he hid. He was found. He was betrayed. Uh, tormentors actually got their hands on, I think, his nephew or something and was going to hurt this boy. Polycarp came forth and uh, would not deny his, his Lord, even right up to the point where he was being led into the stadium where, where he would be... Um, he would be killed. There was a there was a last minute effort on behalf of some politicians, some some leaders in his city, to save his life. Apparently, he was a man of some respect, and, and these two uh, civic leaders dr- kind of drove up to Polycarp in a chariot. And, and I'll just just read it to you. Um, and the. And Herod, this is not the Herod of Jesus' day, it's a, it's a later Herod, accompanied by his father, both riding in a chariot, met him, that is Polycarp, and taking him up in the chariot, they seated themselves beside him and endeavored to persuade him, saying, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar? And they, they, they required that every citizen once a year say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And actually give an offering to him as, he was, as if he was God. And the Christians would not do this. And that's what these two uh, uh, civic leaders are trying to get Polycarp to do in order to save his life. They say, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and, sure make, and make sure of safety? In other words, they did not want him killed. But he at first gave them no answer, and when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him and cast him with violence out of the chariot, insomuch that in getting down from the carriage, he dislocated his leg by the fall. But without being disturbed, and and if suffering nothing, as if suffering nothing, He went eagerly forward with all haste and was conducted to the stadium where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. Now as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. That's incredible, isn't it? I think of, of the transfiguration of Jesus and Elijah and Moses present, Moses present, and what was going on between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Could it be that Moses and Elijah were saying, Be strong, Jesus. Show thyself a man. Show thyself a son of God. Don't know. Possibility. 
So uh, Polycarp was taken in before the, before the stadium, and he was tried to, they tried to persuade him once, once again. Uh, um, they're saying to him, have respect to thy old age, and other similar things according to their custom. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, say, away, from, away with the atheist. So Polycarp raised his hands and head, and he had his head, hands to his head, and said, uh, well, away, away with all the atheists. And then they wanted him to swear liberty uh, and allegiance to Caesar, and he would not. And his, his most famous line follows, and he's standing in the stadium now. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Second century was filled with stories like that. Where the call of martyrdom was not shunned, but welcomed. I rather suspect and Stephen, the closer he got to the end, filled more and more by the fervor of what he was saying, gave ground of the Holy Spirit within him. Holy Spirit within him spoke out these final words of, of responsibility and accountability. Uh, and then I think there was a partnership in the words at the very end between Stephen and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, uh, Lord Jesus, forgive them. They, know, they don't know what they're doing. Lord Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. When I read stories like this, I look at myself and I think I am a whiny little spoiled brat. I swim in luxury and security comfort. I don't know what picking up a cross and following Jesus Christ means. Much of my life when, you know, when that was said, if any man would follow after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. What I heard was take up your lazy boy and follow me. We just don't know the extreme to which God will go with us if we give him that opening. I don't think that God comes and jumps on top of us and holds us down and says, I'm not going to let you up until you say uncle or until you say I'm going to carry a cross. I don't ever think that he abuses us in that way. But if we give him an opening, it can go from bad to worse. But the bad to worse is really good to better. How many of us really in our hearts want to gather around the throne of God and say, Lord, I just really can't remember ever hurting for you. Can I have a few more minutes to think about it? Listen. The cross was not an instrument of death. It was an instrument of torture. Instrument of death was a sword, and it was all over in a few seconds. 
One well-placed sword meant instant death. Cross, however, was designed for torture. And it could last for days. And Jesus chose that to represent following him. Take up your cross daily. It actually says, I think I'm right on that. Take up your cross daily and follow after me. So I don't think it was an accident what happened to Stephen. I don't think he did it by himself. I don't think that he was at the end of the sermon ignorant of what was coming. And I think that he willingly, gladly maybe, laid his life down for ultimate better purposes than living until he was 80 years old. I said to you earlier that I wanted to expand the scripture a little bit for this morning. I guess I didn't read it far enough when I first put that syllables together. But I want, I want to go... Uh, all the way to the end, I want to go to, to chapter 8. Remember Saul was sitting there. Saul bore witness. Saul, later Paul, bore witness to this execution. Apparently approving of it. He had letters, remember, from people in high places. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. And the next verse. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. This was the first great diaspora of the Christian faith. This was the first great spreading of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. What precipitated that? The martyrdom of Stephen. Do you think Stephen was disappointed in that when he got to heaven? And the Lord said, Stephen, look what you had a hand in. Your martyrdom, your death spread my witness throughout the civilized world in every direction. Men and women who knew me, know me, are scattered abroad preaching the good news in my name. I bet you there was not one single soul present of the Christian community who thought that Stephen's death was good news. Because that's we are in the flesh, aren't we? We don't think beyond the horizon of eternity. But when we step back, look through our wide-angle heaven lenses, there is a purpose to a cross. And sometimes in our suffering, the seed falls to the ground and it dies. And then it springs up again. And it bears fruit. Let us not be wimps. Let us not have spiritual short-sightedness. Let us not value life 
for what the world gives us. But instead, following in giant footsteps before us, the witness of our spiritual ancestors, who just cannot be silent in certain moments of their lives. And they stand up, they speak up, they act out regardless of what it costs them in the hope and the confidence that this will be true. God blesses every true cross, every good Friday, with an Easter. It's just that we may not see that Easter until we get home. Be strong, brothers and sisters. We are called to carry a cross. The trails have been blazed before us. We know the way. But Lord, we don't know the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I carried a cross. Pick up your cross and follow. God bless.